When I was two months old, I was baptized by a man named James Lawson. James Lawson Jr. Um, <laughs> um, James Lawson was the pastor of the church I was going to. And, you know, there's this picture. And I found his sermons quite boring. I found his way a little intense. I didn't really get James Lawson. Okay. And then I went to college and I realized that James Lawson is an international hero. <laughs> You see, James Lawson was born in the 20s and graduated from college in 1951, and then he dodged the draft and went to jail. And then, after getting out of jail, he decided, or he had decided long before that, to become a Methodist pastor. So he did his mission work in India because he figured, I'm dodging a draft in America because America doesn't know how to do peace, so I'm going to learn from someone who actually knows how to do peace. Gandhi. So he hung up with Gandhi for four years and learned how to organize movements from Gandhi. Then he came back here and he said, okay, it's time. It's time to organize some movements. But first he went to school. <laughs> um, he went to a few seminaries, um, eventually landed in Vanderbilt um, in Tennessee where he decided, okay, this is the place. Um, and so there are some pictures um, hard to see this picture, but that is that is the sit-ins, friends. That is the sit-ins where folks decided at these whites-only counters they were going to sit in because James Lawson and his friends were trying to figure out provocative ways of engaging uh, the violence of white supremacy, and they decided, okay, we're going to do we're going to sit at these places because we belong there. Um, and then that turned into, next page, next slide, the Freedom Rides, right? So uh, James Lawson was friends with another guy named John, John Lewis. And um, James Lawson met John Lewis when he was a teenager. And John Lewis was like, I want to fight for justice. And James Lawson is like, come with me. So then after John Lewis also went to seminary, he too joined the movement and was a part, along with Diane Nash and some others, of organizing the Freedom Rides. James Lawson then went on to organize uh, the Memphis sanitation strike. I don't know if you've seen these signs, but these are a group of men uh, fighting for their dignity to be paid what they should be paid. And James Lawson essentially kind of helped to organize the uh, structure of these move, the structure of this strike, and how they would engage, all the while engaging and teaching nonviolence. And I was thinking about this, you know, I think about James Lawson a lot, who is still alive, friends. He's like 92, and he's like just as brilliant as ever. I don't understand. God, may, may it be. May it so be for me, I wish. He's got a crown of gray hair. It's the best thing ever. But I was thinking about all these things that James Lawson was a part of, and then my, my feelings of like wonder and awe turned to feelings of, 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 of confusion and of concern because, next slide, um, this is that bus on fire. The Ku Klux Klan set the bus on fire. 
They set these freedom ride buses on fire. People came to ambush, violently ambush, the freedom riders regularly. Next slide. Right? This is confrontation that happened at those counters. And I will tell you, fun fact, um, James Lawson, when he gathered college students to do this work, he trained them. He trained them. They, they trained by doing this to each other. They trained by putting cigarette butts out on each other's heads. They trained by telling each other all of the vile things they knew they were going to hear when this happened. And it came to pass just as they said. And then, this is the Lorraine Hotel, where during that Memphis sanitation strike that James Lawson organized, he called in a friend to motivate people to continue in the struggle. You all know the friend. The friend was Martin Luther King Jr. Martin Luther King Jr. was in Memphis because James Lawson called and said, the folks in Memphis need some encouragement. And that's when you hear Martin Luther King say those words, I've been to the mountaintop. Right, there is a glorious nature of nonviolence that we talk about sometimes in the midst of Black History Month and in the midst of these days where violence against um, communities of various types continues to rage. And if you are wondering, does it work? Is it real? Should we do it? That is the right question. You should, like, I don't know, Maybe some of y'all feel like it's the way to go. I look at James Lawson and I wonder why. For what? You let them do that to you? Does nonviolence work? How does it work? What does it mean that it works? Violence seems inevitably the response to nonviolence. What do we do? How do we engage? Friends, we are in Luke chapter 6, where Jesus decides, I am going to distribute my primary ethic to people, right? Sometimes in the book of Matthew, we call this the Sermon on the Mount. In the book of Luke, it's called the Sermon on the Plain. They are not on a mountain. They're in a flat space. And the thing is, lots of people love the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, because lots of people love to escape the implications of what this means by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. And Luke drops the in spirit. Blessed are the poor. <laughs> blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's okay. We're going to riff off of this. There's one, there's one right here. Pardon me. I found it. Got it. Thank you. Let me make sure I get this right. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, 
for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you, revile you, and defame you on account of the human one, the son of man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven. For that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. I'm going to keep reading because it just gets more uncomfortable. But woe to you who are rich. I'm just reading, friends. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. We don't like this version, do we? It's a little uncomfortable. Because it actually tells us what's actually happening for people. They are living in the midst of an empire and a dynamic that is making them this poor and enjoying it. They are in the midst of an empire that has basically deified their poverty as the way the gods have made it to be. That has deified their sadness. That has deified all manner of ways that their minds and bodies and spirits are breaking down under the crushing weight of this dynamic as just the way things are supposed to be. And here comes Jesus. And when you hear that word blessed, it's this Greek word makarios, which is essentially the sign of divine blessing. And already Jesus has turned everything on its head because that is the word that the emperors and the rulers use to describe themselves. And Jesus says, no, it's you. No, it's you. Why am I telling you about all the stuff that comes before this? Because Jesus needs them to know that before I give you an ethic, you must know that you matter. You are worthy. You are loved. I see this. I see this suffering. I intend for it to be different. And I'm going to invite you to be a part of it. And the people are like, yes! And then the next words are, but I say to you that listen. <laughs> oh, Jesus. I don't want a but. <laughs> and here it comes, friends. Here it comes. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Friends, don't let anyone offer those words without saying the words first. You are not what this empire says you are. Say that first. Say that first. You say to people, you matter. You are worthy. In God's space, you have a place in God's space, we own this whole project of being God's people, of being God's creatures together. Say that first, and then say, love your enemies. Because without saying that first, these words feel abusive. These words feel like they are, being, they are asking us to continue to contribute to the ways that those who experience abuse get to just 
experience it willy-nilly. Keep it coming. I'm going to love you even though. No. No, friends. You matter. You are worthy. You are made well. You belong. Now, love your enemies. And what is the difference? What difference does it make that we hold on to the fact that we are worthy, that God has made us in God's own image, and that matters? Well, the major difference is that our love is our choice. And in particular, it is a choice to embarrass our enemies. Our love is a choice to embarrass our enemies. Now, friends, I know that that, that, that's a, that doesn't sound nonviolent, maybe. But you got to understand something important about most of the Bible and very importantly about Luke 6. This is, this is talking to a community. Friends, I would never recommend that any one of us choose to love our enemies in isolation. Don't do that. This is talking to a community. When we talk about what we're talking about in this passage, we are implicating a people. We are deciding things together. That makes sense? So here's the reason why embarrassment is good. Because, friends, they live in a communal, collective culture. And in a communal, collective culture, word gets around. Word travels fast. They don't need Twitter. They have the marketplace. <laughs> Word travels fast. In a collective culture, you know everybody's business by the end of the day. And so when a community says that we are going to operate in this way in relationship to the empire, essentially what they are doing is they are collectively saying both to themselves and to the rest of the community, we're not, we're not just going to take this. It may look that way, right? When you hear these words, pray for those who curse you, it could look that way. But friends, this is an opportunity for the people of God to make a choice. To make a choice. They get to choose. What's interesting is that part of the way that they are invited to make this choice um, is it says here, um, if anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other. And for anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. For people that are poor, they essentially have two pieces of clothing. <laughs> And when you take their shirt, all they're left is with their is is their cloak. And usually, when you're taking that shirt, you're taking it because that person is unable to pay a debt that they have. And so Jesus is essentially saying, you give them the choice. Either you be merciful or you make me naked. You choose. And despite all the things that we know about the violence of the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire likes to also pretend that it's pious. They, 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 they like to appear as if they're kind. 
So again, the embarrassment. In their space, when, when you make this offer to someone who has, who has obviously, you know, owes you something and you can't pay it, and you make this offer, they go, well, well, I don't want to be seen as someone who made somebody naked. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to get my money back, right? I mean, and they're like, well, you, wanted, you, 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 you seem to have wanted it all. Do you want it all? Do you want me to live or do you want it all? What a question to ask to an empire trying to pretend to be good. But friends, this leads to more violence. I don't like it. Jesus continues. And I wish he wasn't so provocative. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Oh, come on. And eventually, Jesus says this, and I want to key your ears on this. Um, Love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, who is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Jesus is inviting this community into what I would like to call the family business. And the family business seems to operate in the following way. These people have enemies, not because they made enemies, but because they just choose to not participate in the empire. So in fact, the empire has said, you are our enemy. And the people of God have said, well, why? (laughs) You're, you're, You're made in the image of God. So am I. Let's do it together. And the empire says, no, no room for you. And Jesus is telling them to essentially say, yes, there is. There's room for you too. There's room for all of us. Let's help each other to thrive. See, it's this constant positioning of saying, you're saying there's no room. And I'm saying, yes, there is. We're saying there's room for everybody. How many people have been in a space where people don't like that? People don't like that there's room for everyone. You need to be able to think exactly this way and this way only. You need to be able to present yourself as this way and this way only. You see, the family business is kindness, not the kind of kindness that says I'm ignoring who you are and what you're doing and the way that you are generally cruel and exclusive. No, it is a kindness coming from the position of those beatitudes. We already know who we are. And so are you. (laughs) We already know that we're loved. And so are you. Let's do this together. You are not our enemies. We own this work together. You see, what happens is that in the midst of this kindness that God seems to be inviting them into, there is a way that they get to either engage with an empire that is forgotten or chooses not to remember that we are all loved. 
And this choice into kindness is, is, a, is a choice to say, yes, yes, we are. Yes, we are all loved. Which sounds okay, but then Jesus concludes in a way that makes me uncomfortable again. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. I read this passage, and the question that kept ringing in my body was, where's the accountability, Jesus? Where's the accountability? People can't just do evil things forever. You have, they have to answer to something or to someone when they do them. And I kept dealing with what I felt was an uncomfortable response, which was, um, I will. (laughs) I will. Was the first part of that response. And I was like, I don't like that. The second part in this passage is equally as unsettling, which is the call to forgive for me, I received it almost as a, a humbling Because I look at this dynamic, I look at this empire, I look at the ways that folks are being told to deify their own suffering. I look at the the mechanisms that make that work. And then I think to myself, am I immune from participation? I am not. I could easily become an apologist for this. I could easily sell out my neighbors. I could easily just decide it's easier to get along with the empire. Part of the ask to forgive is dealing with the uncomfortable inevitability that we too can choose into that kind of dynamic. And it is particularly interesting that he is telling these folks that are poor that you too could make this choice. You are capable of becoming complicit. And when you forgive, you remember. You remember that it, you, you are capable. But another side of this is to acknowledge that in the midst of this dynamic, in the midst of all of this abuse, that anger and rage and despair can overtake us. I don't know about you, but over the past several years, I just have had weeks upon weeks where I am overtaken by one, two, or all three of those things. Where I don't want to get out of bed, and I don't want to talk to anybody, and I don't want to engage in any of my responsibilities because I am either too angry or too sad, or my anger has morphed into a rage that cannot abide another human, not even myself. And forgiveness in this case is not a way to say to these dynamics and those who apologize for them that it is okay. That is not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is a way for me to make a choice to re-engage. It is essentially a way that I call myself back 
to the Makarios, to the blessing that I have been given. It is a way to call myself back to the family business. It is a way to re-remember that I am made in the image of God and that I matter and that there is work for me to do from the place of being loved. Does nonviolence work? I don't know. But here's my conclusion. Nonviolence is work. It's hard work. It's hard work. That same man who baptized me, they found a way to get James Lawson to show up at my commissioning. What a life. And do you know what he told me to do? He didn't tell me to be a freedom fighter. He didn't tell me to fight for justice. James Lawson told me to follow Jesus. He told me to follow Jesus. He said, because the work is hard. (laughs) And so, friends, I come to you as someone who is confused this morning. I want to choose nonviolence, but it's hard work. Some of you may want to make that choice as well. It's hard work. And sometimes it's easy to trust Jesus and follow Jesus, and sometimes it's hard. And so, friends, my one encouragement to you is to stay in the struggle. It's okay to struggle with it. It's okay to be mad. These words don't exactly square away in a nice, neat package that says, oh, it's so great. Now I'm going to make all these choices to expose myself to the ways that our violent systems are going to come crashing in on me. No, that's not a neat choice. It's also not a choice that I would invite any of you to make in isolation. Don't do it. Make that choice together. Let's make that choice together. And let's hold on to each other while we try. And there are no guarantees that it will work. (laughs) If you talk to James Lawson, he'll tell you, yeah, we did some stuff, but look at the world. (laughs) There's still so much to do. Yeah, there's still so much to do. But while we work, and while we work together, we are loved. We are seen, God sees, and God is with us.